Can you hear me? Let's get it on. Let's get it on. You, you rolling cans? <laughs> I am rolling cans. I got my, my big old headset on. <laughs> um, so, I don't know how long your piece is, but... Mine's not very long. Mine's, like, shorter than last time's. Mine's about a page and a quarter. Okay. Because I don't really page have one. A, <laughs> so I think we're... Third. Oh, good. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the greatest radio show on earth. We're okay. your overprepared host, Jimmy Hackett and the Charming Joseph Baker. Well, I mean, we're rolling. We right really, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that you took your advice uh, from last week's episode, which was don't work too hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Leave, leave the overachieving for the overachievers. Um, That's right. No, I, I did write several pages of notes, but nothing Good. coherent really came out of it. And uh, I don't are the, know. Are I, the I, notes I all around a, Are they all around a central theme, or are, are the notes themselves a disparate? Uh, they're kind of disparate, but I think I can. I think I can weave them in. I think it. I'm going to go for the more el, nat, el natural nice. approach this time. Nice. Did I ever tell you how I'm? I'm really upset that the word disparate sounds a lot like desperate and so like sometimes yeah have you heard that word before like like disparate kind of like 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 dispersed uh no yeah so but it sounds like desperate right so i I, so i i I hear people say disparate and i'm thinking oh they mean like desperate but they really mean like things that aren't like yes, like if it's having in a Microsoft Word, it like gives me I'll, I'll Mar- give me some synonyms. Markedly dissimilar, uh, unlike, distinct. unequal, different. Yeah, versus desperate, which is you obviously know what desperate means. And so sometimes I hear people say like, oh, like you know that's a that's a disparate. Uh, those are disparate ideas, and I think they mean that they're desperate, but they mean disparate. Like it's a word that I learned in like the past year. I've added this word mm. to my vocabulary. So okay. So in any event, well, I do have a piece. I do have a piece, and uh, you have a, you have I like a, it a, lot. a disparate piece. Uh, well, it, it may be disparate to what you wrote about. In fact, hopefully, it's disparate to what you wrote about um, <laughs> for the variety of the show. But but I, I like this. This is probably of all the pieces that I've that I've written so far, this might be my favorite one, and I would say is at least as applicable as my shower piece. Perfect. Well, we we can make it our our, our cornerstone tonight. Or centerpiece. This will be good. I think it's something that both you and I will have a lot to say about. Um, it'll be something that has touched both of us personally on a cellular level, and uh, that reference will make more sense in uh, in a few moments. All right, let's roll through it. Well, for everybody who's uh, joining us, uh, this is Roses and Rhetoric. As always, I'm your host Jimmy Hackett, and with me is my charming co-host Joseph Stanford. So we were we were just reviewing a little bit about our our weeks, and uh, I I have a, a, a written piece that I will share. Joe is taking a, a somewhat different approach uh, today, rather than having one focal point. He has a a variety of of notes to to go over. Uh, before getting into that, Joe, is there anything uh, from your week or any uh, thoughts you had that aren't covered in your writing that you wanted to make sure that we got to in today's episode? Uh, yeah, I think we need to talk about how Oregon is locking down again, starting on Wednesday. Are you excited? Some, some things to say about that. Am I excited for it? Um, Are you excited for the lockdown? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, do you, I've been planning, planning it for a while. Do you, do you enjoy nesting? Do you enjoy, you know, being cozy in your, in your house? 
<laughs> yes, I love being cozy in my 500 square foot apartment without being able to go to the gym. So, so what anywhere. rules specifically will change for you? So I, I feel like the word lockdown has different meanings. So for you in Oregon, and, and to, just for people, you were in Portland, Oregon. So are there yeah. any like city level things that are happening beyond just the state or is it all pretty uniform? Uh, so the state is mandating a two week lockdown, but in the Portland County where the majority of the people are, they're going to do a four week lockdown. And the difference between the lockdown and where we're at now is that that means that gyms close. So that means no squats. That means no deadlifts. That means no gains. And uh, bars and restaurants close. So that means no going out, no eating out. Um, the two, those are really the only reasons I leave my apartment. And uh, both those things are going away. So it should be good times. Yeah, no, no bars and no barbells. So that's <laughs> yeah, be yeah. A, tough, a tough spot to, to be in. Um, what about work? How will that affect your work routine? Are you still going into the office or is that going to be cut back? How will that be affected? Um, I'm sure they'll have some communications this week because this announcement was made by our governor, Governor Brown, over the weekend. So there, something will come, but uh, I've been deemed an essential employee and I've been going in every day. So I don't expect that to change. Uh, the only place it gets hairy is that I am flying out to Arizona this week. And part of this mandate states that if you fly from anywhere to Oregon, you have to take a 14 day quarantine or, you know, once you arrive back here. Mm-hmm. So that could get hairy if I'm supposed to be at work every day. And then Governor Brown saying I need to take a two week hiatus before I can go back in. <laughs> so week. it could get interesting. <laughs> Very good. Well, well, we'll have more to follow up with that in the next couple of weeks. And you'll be in a similar spot to you know, anybody who's leaving a, a state with these lockdowns, I mean, there's going to be travel over the holidays for, for sure. I mean, we're looking at two big travel holidays. Thanksgiving is a big one. Christmas is a big one. So, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see the, uh, the strictness with which they enforce these quarantines, because I mean, you're going to be talking about quite a number of people that are having to stay at home for two weeks. And for, for some people that's going to be more feasible than others. Yeah, in the reporting that the governor put out, it said that you're only allowed to have six people at most in your home. And that includes for like Thanksgiving, no more than two families at a time. And it made the it made the explicit description that they're going to enforce it this time. They're going to use the police to enforce it. So you're going to before they didn't really write people up for having more than six people in their homes. But uh, at this point, it'll be a misdemeanor offense and there'll be a fine. So uh, I guess we're going to use our cops for something in Portland now. <laughs> so, and I, and I guess too, finally people have an excuse for like not inviting all their annoying in-laws to holiday parties, <laughs> right? Like maybe this is really, that's true. yeah. So really now people get to say, oh, you know, you didn't quite make the list. We'd love to have you, but it's illegal. So we can't have you this year. <laughs> that's right. It'll be a, I'm sure it'll be a blessing for some people. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, very good. Well, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, after four weeks, I mean, are they what what criteria are they using for evaluating lifting the, the, the quarantine? You know, that's the thing. They don't really they don't really say. And I mean, obviously, the, the criteria should be more related to death counts or hospital vacancies. But I, I feel like it's the biggest factor that influences these decisions are just the media hype over the total number of cases that's currently skyrocketing in every state, it seems. 
yeah, it's it's hard to imagine panic leading to. I mean, obviously there there is a time for panic, but there's also a time for taking a step back. And I mean, it's it's you know I, I like um, the phrase Sky Adam uses about like not calling a game during halftime. Right now, it's hard to know you know the right thing to do in the situations, and you know we probably won't know for many years after the fact when people can actually go back and look at the impacts of lockdowns, the impacts of not doing lockdowns, the impacts of, you know, these two week quarantines versus not doing it. And there's just a lot of variables to keep track of. And um, I'm sure, you know, being on the receiving end of a lockdown order is definitely going to be frustrating. So maybe we'll do more Roses and Rhetoric podcasts, help you pass the time. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Can't wait. Yeah. Very good. Well, um, hopefully whatever metrics they use uh, change in, in, uh, in your favor in four weeks. Uh, I know that I'm looking forward to traveling a little bit in the next few weeks, uh, not doing anything for Thanksgiving, but doing something over, over Christmas. Um, in fact, a little bit of a teaser, Joe and I are working toward doing an in-person uh, episode, possibly over December. So keep your eyes open for that one. Uh, but would, right. Joe, if, if that's all that you wanted to say about, about Portland, do you want me to go to my piece and then we can go to your notes? Yeah, let's go to your piece. And Great. I, I can complain, complain about Portland a little bit later. Great. And we know we always love a good Portland batching on this show. Uh, and so we're definitely happy to bring that on to the program. But I want to change topics a little bit, Drew. I want to I change topics to something that we were talking about a little bit last week, which was this concept of the perpetual and just universe. I kind of pose that as humanity's ultimate goal. And I wanted to describe in this week's episode um, – a, a tool that people, I think, need to have in their tool belt in order to be a part of that process. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to go ahead and get started and, and share with what I think is an essential step in helping people equip themselves for uh, that process of the perpetual and just universe. Let's get it on. Okay, so this episode, or rather this uh, article, is called I Can Do It in Microsoft Excel. Who are we, a primitive species clawing for life from the clutches of a cruel world, mocking us at every turn? Who shall we be among the chaos and ruin, the bloodshed and turmoil? We witness a void, yet conceive a just world that might just be, but only if we make it, the grand project of the perpetual and just universe. But how do we get there? As always, I ask the humble reader, join me as I paint a path where the spoils of victory will belong to all of humanity, to all those who observe the raw deal of life as it is and had the courage to look destiny in the eyes and say, no, I will carve my own path in this life because in this life I can do anything and I can do it in Microsoft Excel. I will do battle with evil, and my army will be cells programmed as needed to bring about calculations in an instant manner, formatted for clarity, bolded for bravery. My army of light will vanquish from this realm all those who wish humanity harm. My cells take no prisoners. Because while this fight will be a struggle, we can do it in Microsoft Excel. In terms of Microsoft Excel proficiency on a scale of one to five, 
I'd say I am a solid three. This is guidance for those just being exposed to Microsoft Excel, habits and tips to use now as you progress through spreadsheet mastery. What follows below is a roadmap for those wishing to adopt this tool to their lives, to bring a measure of order to the sea of chaos, to proudly build our Tower of Babel in defiance of those who wish to see humanity subjected to a destitute existence, to those who wish to peek into the very heart of this universe. Take my hand as I show you how you can do it in Microsoft Excel. Tip number one, don't be a little bitch. Save your spreadsheet as a macro-enabled worksheet. If you're not using macros, your punk ass needs to grow up. We are in the fight of our lives. Weakness is a curable condition with a chronic prognosis. Take the first leap into scripting and behold the kingdom at your fingertips. Tip number two, fences make good neighbors and borders make good spreadsheets, but be creative. There's no shortage of ways to guide the human eye, but always guide towards the light with courage as your guide. Tip number three, when making graphs, remember to resize the text. Error on the side of too big and truly consider the chart type that best fits your message. Number four, I am adventurous with text alignment. It's instinctual, raw, left and right are fun. Too much centering is usually a sign of idol worship of the middle ground. Do not be afraid of keeping things off the center. Trust your instincts and remember vertical alignment. Next, High performers will understand the benefit of using colors on the spreadsheet. Make this a habit early on and make the habit too of working the whole color palette. Next, keep an eye on the decimal count. Anything more than two is usually a sign of cowardice. Understand the problem well enough to know what level of accuracy is needed. Then make a judgment call and stick by it. This is Microsoft Excel. This is the big leagues. Deserve the power you command. Next, skip A1, animal sacrifice. In fact, skip the leftmost column and top row. This helps the spreadsheet feel less crowded. And lastly, a detour into programming macros is beyond the scope of this class. I'll just add that in my opinion, a sheet should either use cell formulas or macros. If possible, avoid MUTs. This makes following the flow of the sheet easier for the future user. There are always exceptions to these types of rules, and I expect this one to be controversial, but you do not get into the rap game to make friends. These tips should get anyone off the sidelines and into the match. Join us as we stand on the shores of destiny. Our mission, the perpetual and just universe. Our tool, the light of the human spirit and the knowledge that we can do it. We can do anything in Microsoft Excel. Bravo. Thank you, thank you. Oh, bravo. Okay. 
So everybody, that's going to be our, our episode this week. Join us uh, next time, and we'll get back. No. <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to start here. So there's a lot there to unpack. I mean, you can spend hours, weeks, months, perhaps, talking about Microsoft Excel. I'm, and I'm just, of course, I'm just scratching the surface in the, in, in this piece. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to. I'm trying to read between the the cells here a little bit. Nice, nice. And piece this together. Um. It seems like Microsoft Excel is a metaphor for possibly something larger, would you say? I would say Microsoft, here's what the metaphor is. If we're going to get right into the metaphor, which you know I love doing, nothing like jumping into a good metaphor. I think the tool or the, the takeaway, let's say, is that if you have a home computer and you have access to Microsoft Excel, you have access to a much more powerful tool than you may realize. And it's been my observation that in any place that I've worked, people are now fully utilizing the capabilities of spreadsheet programs, even when they're using the programs themselves. I would also add to that, mm -hmm. that was just a little bit of uh, uh, exploring the unknown a little bit. I think programming and spreadsheets in general are far, are far more accessible than people may think um, in that if people kind of took that first step and just kind of learned a little bit of Excel, learned a little bit of VBA programming, which is the language that we use for macros, uh, that they might find some kind of cool thing uh, they could do and uh, would learn something valuable along the way, which would just be a little glimpse into computer science, a little, a little glimpse into how computers work, why they're useful, um, and then have some fun along the way. Okay, let's talk specifics. What, what, are, what are some actions or what are some things that the average person can start using Excel for today that could help them in their life and justifying their universe. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with probably a tool that people do uh, have some knowledge of. They probably were exposed to it in school, but maybe they forgot about it. And that would be the solver function. So solver actually isn't even something you have to program. It's built into Excel. You just have to activate it. You know, you go into the toolbar and you, you click, you know, I forget exactly how you bring it out, but it's already in your Excel. You just need to activate it, basically. Google it, it'll come up. Um, what makes Solver really neat is you can basically set up a bunch of different equations in Excel, and you can use Solver to figure out the answer to the equations. So I, I was working on that this morning. I was doing a little something with, with Solver. What makes Solver neat is that solving, solving a bunch of equations by hand can be really daunting, um, and furthermore, it can be really time-consuming. And oftentimes it's easier to set up a problem than to actually solve it. So using solver can save time on that end. If you have a budget, if you're trying to figure out, you know, you have all these, you know, you have a variety of different bills to pay, you're trying to figure out how much money to save, you're trying to figure out, you know, some kind of optimal, you know, savings rate, or you're trying to figure out some kind of, you know, how much money can you afford to spend on vacation, you know, this year in terms of how it affects next year's finances. All of that can be done in Excel. You can probably use solver to figure it out as well. The next thing that I would add to that and branching, branching off Solver a little bit is that um, I think as, as kind of a nice way to be to, to get a little bit of curiosity about how computers work, um, it would be worth it just to learn how to do a couple of simple, you know, if then statements in VBA, a couple of simple while loops or for loops in VBA, um, just to have a bit of familiarity with how computers work and to have a little bit of familiarity with uh, kind of the the software that's going on behind computers all the time when we're when we're using it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, having that familiarity with computers work, 
uh, as you know, is also how humans work since uh, we all live in a human uh, computer simulation. Very true. Right. Very true. So there, there's some crossover there. And I think the metaphor extends. I mean, but seriously, like even just looking at for loops and if loops and the logic that you program computers with, uh, having some base level understanding of that translates to real life and to 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 your thoughts in Absolutely. general. Absolutely. And it's like a good, uh, it's a good spell check for your mind to see if your thoughts make any sense because yeah. you can kind of cross-reference it to, would this work in a code? Would this work in a computer code? Yeah, and I, I think that that's a great point. And I'll just build on that a little bit by saying it's also, we are surrounded by computers all the time. I think it's a good, you know, Scott Adams talks about the, the, uh, the uh, talent stack. Having a little bit of knowledge of programming means that when you interact with the computer, which is happening, you know, 30 times a day, I mean, everything these days has a computer in it. When it doesn't work, it'll give you some idea as to what's not working. It'll give you some idea as to what could be going wrong. And maybe not in every single circumstance, but I, I think it's a good thing for people to not live in total mystery about how things work. And I think with computers, with just a little bit of effort, a, a ton of mystery can be lifted from that world. Um, you know, I, I just remember like pre-college, how I thought computers worked into like post-college, how now I know computers work. Uh, what I was imagining before was just ridiculous. And now, I, I mean, obviously computers are, are complex, but they're complex because they take a simple thing and they build on it. The, the fundamentals of computer science are not complicated. Whereas with say something like physics, where it's just at any level, it's actually just extremely complicated. Like if you get down to like the Higgs boson, I don't even know what that is. You build up to relativity, I don't know what that is either. So that's always confusing. But with computers, What's nice is that you do have these simple fundamental things that you can wrap your head around, like loops and about, you know, variables and that kind of thing. And it, it just makes it less mysterious, which I think has benefits as well. And hopefully, if somebody is currently a little on edge about learning about computers, they're a little nervous, if they take these steps, if they make it a, a, a habit to learn a little bit how computers work, maybe they gain a little bit of intellectual courage, uh, a little bit of intellectual self-esteem they believe in their, their thought processes and then they take that further and further. Okay. I, li I like that. I mean, you're right. It, it comes down to just ones and zeros. It's just bits. And it's very simple when you put it under a microscope, how the computer operates, but obviously you string together millions and millions of billions of ones and zeros. And that's what makes the complexity, but it's complex in a different way than physics. Like you said, like it's, it's more, fundamental there's more just a few fundamental rules that operate the computer well physics seems like a a bunch of scaffolding and you know not serious framework that's in place like physics changes depending on what scale you're looking at it etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah and, and, and it makes computers something that is easy to wrap your head around and again that three out of five in terms of my knowledge of excel is probably being generous to myself they're probably maybe been a little bit lower than that but, you know, I've just have had fun with Excel, you know, even if that's a hobby, you know, what, what's nice with it, with just knowing something about computers is that I don't have to be good at math to do complicated things with math because I know how to use a computer. I don't know how to solve fancy differential equations or how to solve, you know, fancy, you know, systems of equations or any of that nonsense. I can just put it in a computer. And so I can have all the benefits of the results without any of the struggle of the hard work that is to me from what I care about, not really relevant. I don't really care how they solve it as long as it's solved properly. And so 
using the computer as a tool, which is of course the purpose of the computer is nice. Um, and I think people could get even more utility out of it uh, by learning just a little bit more about how these different programs work and a little bit about how programs work in general. Um, and again, we're talking here about scripting. I'm not talking about like hardcore, you know, computer science optimization problems or anything of that nature. Just a very simple understanding, which is all that I have of, of, of these things can really illuminate quite a bit in the things you are dealing with in this world, uh, just by the fact that we're all surrounded by technology all the time. I do want to get a little deeper into some of these individual steps you said, but before we go there, I want to talk about something you said in the very beginning about willing your way or essentially positive thinking and having positive thoughts mm -hmm. and how they self manifest. Yeah. Is, is that what you were getting at? With in, that? Uh, in the essay or just now when we were talking? Uh, in your essay, in your piece. So, Oh, I see. No, I will carve my own path because yeah, 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 yeah. That was a, uh, that was nice. Um, so <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Um, I, <laughs> oh, well, a little bit. I, uh, I, I am a believer in, in positivity. I don't subscribe to, uh, you know, some people bring a super, a supernatural element of that framework into, into play. I personally don't. Um, but I, I do think just as a, as a person, who has an emotional mind and, and a, a rational mind and, you know, probably, you know, some obviously it's always some combination of both um, that if you practice being positive and if you're practicing the positive sides of things, that can be a way to uh, deal with problems that, that come your way and uh, serves as a good path for dealing with adversity when you face it. Um, and I do think that, forcing yourself to stay positive will also lead to you being more motivated, which I think is really at the end of the day, what, what counts the most, that it's about the things that we do that matter far more than what we think. And, you know, having motivation allows you simply to do more and uh, being positive, I, I think is a big part of staying motivated. Um, I mean, I will add the caveat, I have had a pretty easy life. So I, you know, I, this will, this will come across as, perhaps being a little shallow. And I understand that I'm, I'm not, not talking to anybody who's like, you know, surviving a genocide or something, but you know, all of us in, in, let's say the more, you know, typical life experiences, you know, everybody has good and bad days, but if you can focus on the positive and that will lead to more motivation that can lead to, you know, basically being more productive. So I've been hesitant to, like I've known, I've heard, you know, all these people talking about positive thinking and how that is what defines and controls the world. And I knew that was a field of discussion that lives out there, but I was always hesitant to uh, really explore it because it, it, I think you use the word supernatural effect, uh, but I, that's kind of how it felt. It felt like a little like astrology or like a little like some sort of pseudo pseudoscience type thing. But uh, recently, especially in this past week, I've <laughs> kind of started to go all on board with this shit. Um, have you heard of Norman Vincent Peale before? I have not. I have not. I, let me just throw this in just kind of on that. The only, my only exposure to this thing that I think you're talking about would be a book called The Secret. I've read that book like maybe 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I personally did not find it very convincing, but that's, but that's, that's my only exposure really to this kind of thinking. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, the framework that I'm, that I'm, I'm using to evaluate what you're saying right now. That's my only 
the kind of knowledge point. I wasn't sure if the person you just mentioned, uh, if he was involved with that book or not. It was a, a fairly popular book back in the day. Yeah, The Secret. I think I think that had a female author and that came out a little oh, bit God. later. And it was actually made into a Netflix right, documentary, right. I believe. And yeah, I did watch that documentary a long time ago and it felt like it felt super cheesy. I, I don't think it was very well done. I remember there was scenes where people were saying like, and it looked like they were just witnesses, like actors that were just paid to read a script and they're telling stories like, oh yeah, like I just started like, instead of thinking I was going to get bills in the mail, I thought I would get checks <laughs> in the mail. Then all of a sudden checks start coming in the mail and I got rich. Like it seemed a little bogus, a little fishy from that right. perspective. But um, no- Norman Vincent Peale, uh, he was an American minister and author best known for his work in popularizing the concept of positive thinking. Uh, and this was especially through his best-selling book called The Power of Positive Thinking. And he served as a as an A-list pastor for a lot of famous people, such as Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. And in fact, he shaped Donald Trump's thinking so much that he, Donald Trump himself, listed Norman Vincent Peale as his biggest mentor, aside from his father. And going through and watching him speak, just the way he looks at things and his mannerisms, it it's very much like Trump. And I... It, in essence, it's it, it's convincing yourself. It's forcing yourself to drink your own Kool-Aid. So you set your beliefs and you live by them. Like you say, oh, I'm going to be successful in this. I'm going to be successful in this. Like I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And you just keep that mantra going in your head. And it might, sure, it might make you look a little wacky to other people. But Vincent Peale argues that that's what makes the success is that attitude. Like it's not luck. It's not skills it's not talent stacks it's i mean sure all that stuff helps but when it comes down to it it's being able to hypnotize yourself into these belief systems that actually do self-manifest and i I think trump's a great example of that um even you know he's down in the election right now and even so like his attitude has not changed it's unwavered he still thinks he still thinks he's got it you know and that this this is an important concept to me, or it's of interest to me, because as you know from some of my old from some of the previous podcasts and previous pieces I've wrote, I, I like to read a lot about Eastern philosophy and defeating the ego and quieting the mind, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem with that is it leaves you in a place where where you, you don't have much ambition. You don't ha- it doesn't you're you're not up to anything. Like even in your just demeanor when you talk to other people, like you're kind of apathetic, you're kind of just there existing. Like it's not, there's nothing like driving you. And it's as if you've reduced or eliminated or largely reduced the illusions that you live in your own life so that you're kind of more or less at this, this blank slate um, from which you can build off of and you can start adding in these illusions like positive thinking. And that is the area that's really been interesting me this past week because you look at it and you look at Kanye too. I remember in the Joe Rogan interview, he said one thing where like he said something about, Oh yeah, like such and such isn't going to do so, so well. Kanye said that, but then right away he caught himself. He's like, Oh no, I'm not even going to say that. I'm not even going to put that out in the world. Like I'm not even going to put that into words so that they can exist in the universe because 
that's just baggage for carrying you around. And another example of this is I was watching some like old school Trump interviews from like way back in the day before he even got into politics. And he, he said, he said that at one point he wrote down on paper that he wished that he went bankrupt at one time so that he could see who his true friends were. And uh, I guess in the early nineties, there was some real estate crash that literally put him hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. <laughs> and then he found out who his true friends were. So the interviewer was asking about it and he's like, yeah, I'm not even going to say those words again. Uh, it was interesting. It was a good lesson, but it wasn't fun. And uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to say that. So it's just the awareness of what you put out into the universe uh, seems like it self manifests itself in a way that is supernatural. Yeah, well, and I, I think it, it would one of the things where it's like, how would you tell? And I guess for me, what I would just say is there are so many benefits of, of, of positive thinking that even without having to worry about, you know, whether or not there is self-manifestation happening, it's still worth it. I mean, it's still better to go through life feeling like you have some level of control over your destiny and over what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And you know, I would view it as just kind of like a like a, a risk setup. It's like I'm going to risk thinking positive, and if if that has some kind of you know secret impact beyond just the kind of the more self evident stuff, then hey, that's perfect. That that that's extra money in the bank or extra whatever. But at the very least, I know that if I'm acting positive and I'm if I'm I, I like kind of what Adam Cole says about internalizing things, which is when something happens to you, focus on what you can do about it. And I think that goes hand in hand with positive thinking as well, because it's, it's easy to think that the world's against you. It's easy to think that you have a rain cloud over your head, but it's not doing you a whole lot of good if it just causes you to be depressed and to not take action and to not try to improve things. A better outlook might be, yeah, things are bad right now, but what can I do to improve them? What can I focus on now today to improve my situation? And I think positive thinking, believing that you have that level of control over your life will motivate you to look for those options more so than if you do not feel that you have that level of control. Um, and so I, I, would, I would agree with thinking positive just from that regard, that at the very least, it will serve as a way to motivate you to, to look for opportunity that if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're down, then you may not be looking for. Yeah, I did write that down because you, you did mention that earlier, how uh, positivity is necessary for motivation. And having that positivity in the back of your mind is what can make you motivated. Because if you're pessimistic and you don't think anything's ever going to work or anything's ever going to be successful, you're not going right. to take much. Right. Like, why would you? Why would but, you get out of bed in the morning if you think that only bad things are going to happen to you? Like you want it. Like, and maybe positivity is even the wrong word. Maybe it's belief in the possibility of a positive outcome. That you know, in other words, you're not. You don't even necessarily expect that things work out in your favor, but if you think that it is at least possible that things will work out in your favor, then maybe you will go out and seek those things that might end up being in in your favor. Um, I'm, I'm trying to frame everything these days in terms of, of, of risk and reward and uh, building off of all mm -hmm. of uh, Nassim Taleb's work. And so it's, it's, it's more about, you know, I want to expose myself to as many things that have you know, positive benefits as possible with at the, at the same time, minimizing, you know, my, my tail risk for being ruined or something. So, you know, it's it, positivity for me is, you know, I, I'm knowingly going to roll the dice on certain things. Maybe it works out for me. Maybe it doesn't, but uh, certainly the positive is a possible outcome. And if I position myself in life to take advantage of the positive outcomes and to minimize the negative losses, then 
then I'll then I'll do all right. Yeah, in in terms of risk management, this I, I'm just I'm reminded of when we were talking about Pascal's right. wager last year or last episode, and that to sum it up, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's uh, with respect to believing in God, he's saying that. Uh, there's so much higher risk for not believing in God and being wrong than believing in God and being wrong. Yeah, that was kind right? of Pascal's. Like you might right, as well believe right. in so God. So that was Pascal's argument. And my argument was not so much to say that he was wrong or right, but to say if we, we do run the risk if that is true. If we, if we believe in God, if that leads to a complacency, then we're in trouble. And so kind of the, the point of the last article was to say whether or not God is real, I still think it's up to humans to assume that we have to create a just world, that that is our project. And that even if God is real, even if God is not as real, that, that is still our project. And, and that is kind of, the, that is the, the, the hard task of humanity is to create that world. Um, and so what, 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 I, what I wouldn't want to have happen is for someone's religious beliefs to, to leave them in a state of complacency where their attitude might be, well, in the end, God will take care of it. That's what I wouldn't want to have happen. Um, now, not everybody who's religious has that mindset by no means at all. So this isn't a critique on religion, it, it, but it is a critique. I mean, I, I, I have heard of that kind of phrase before the, oh, in the end, God will sort it out and say, let's not count on that. That, that is risky. I would rather us do the hard work and in the end, either be favorably surprised or not, <laughs> or be un, unfavorably unsurprised. I, I, I don't know how you want to word that, but but I would rather us take on that challenge in order to make sure that it, that it, is, it is at least attempted uh, in, in this world, uh, just, just in case. Okay, that's, that's interesting. So, I, okay, I'm going to read you two quotes. They're, they're short quotes, they're like two lines. And my argument is that they... Are they about the Excel or thing. are they about Pascal's wager? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read from yeah. a few Excel. about people's Excel. opinions on Excel spreadsheet formatting because yeah. I can go all day about that. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So the first statement is, I know I will be successful in X. Okay. Okay. And my claim is that that is effectively saying the same thing as God will take care of my success in X. So in, in other words, they're both saying the same thing. Um, they're uh, assuming there's some something from the beyond that is fixing the future. But from a mental perspective, they're, they, they still result in having a positive attitude. And the positive attitude is what helps. And I hear what you're saying about, oh, yeah, leave it up to God. Like, it's in God's hands now. Like, that can, in theory, create a sense of um, complacency. But looking at these two statements, I feel like they're saying the exact same yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I think so too. So I would, I would caution against saying either one. And what I would rather someone say is, I believe that I have the power to um, – you know, I, I believe I have the power to, to um, make the most of my life and that that's kind of where we have to leave it. That nobody can guarantee success but you can guarantee your effort towards success. And so that would be the focus, I think, uh, even in terms of positivity. And it kind of reminds me, and it's funny that you said those two quotes because 
there was a, I just finished Nassim Taleb's work on skin in the game. And uh, one of the things that he talks about in, in his works is how this idea of the hero in like Greek mythology, it was more about the action of the hero than the outcome of what the hero was doing. And so somebody was heroic based off of their actions more so than their outcomes. And to me, that's a really powerful idea that what determines a good life isn't necessarily, you know, the, the, the state of your life, but what you're doing in that, in that life. And it ties in with the, you know, I think we talked about this one last time too, but the whole idea from Viktor Frankl, the idea of there, there is no best life. It's all about, you know, having good days. And so, you know, to me, that's where, where my positive thinking would, would be, isn't that I control anything in the future. I, I don't think that I control anything in the future, but I, I, I do think that I can, I can control my, my actions in the present and that I have to be satisfied with the fact that as in a world where there's so many random things happening, I, I can't control how things work out. I can control as much as I possibly can, my own little piece, my own little world. And I just have to take comfort in that, knowing that I did my best and uh, seeing where the chips fall after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I'm very, very interested in what what Norman Vincent Peale is saying, though, about how. And it, it makes it and it's not like it doesn't feel like a supernatural thing. It feels supernatural, but I, I think that I can understand the mechanism behind why it works and having just that by default, even over-exaggerated positive attitude is that it shapes your awareness. It changes your awareness of what you're looking at. Like if you're only looking at success, like you're not going to let failure creep in or you're not going to let, you're not going to get discouraged. You're going to keep your motivation like you were saying earlier. And I I just, it's kind of like programming yourself, like programming yourself like an Excel macro. You're programming in success by reaffirming these things and never losing your confidence and in living life that way. But I, 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 my mind just always come, keeps coming back to, to Trump. Like he's in the bottom of the ninth here down by like, you know, (laughs) four home runs down by a couple of, a couple of States and yeah, a couple of home runs. I, so let me, I, I agree with the idea that people should program themselves to be positive. I, that I totally agree with. What I would what I would say too is that a necessary component of programming in positivity is programming in two additional things. One is perspective, and the other would be humility. And so the idea is that you definitely, as an individual, contribute to your success. Another contribution to your success are things that are out of your control. And so perspective allows you to understand. And this would be like from Nassim Taleb's work on his book *Fooled by Randomness*. Or you have all these stockbrokers who think that they've had that they've figured out this code to the to the stock market and they're making all this money. It's like, well, sure, these people made all this money, but then you have so many other people who were doing similar things who got completely wiped out. It's like you didn't figure anything out. You happened to get lucky. So you want to have that perspective so that you understand how things are coming together. And the other part of that too is humility, so that when you are successful, you you do have the mindset to take a step back and to be thankful for where things are and to realize that it could have gone differently. And so you need to have humility and perspective along with positivity so that if and when you do achieve success, um, it doesn't blind you to the next steps and you don't get too, too caught up in your own, your own head game of thinking you know more than you really do 
which can then lead to other bad things as well. If you really think that you figured out the stock market because you made a whole bunch of money and you keep your money where you is and then you blow up and lose a whole bunch of money, you, that, that isn't good. So you always want to have perspective and humility with positivity. I like, and I, I, I believe this is a loser think, the idea of, uh, of having a little bit of, of bravado or a little bit of, of um, he wouldn't call it positive thinking, but it was more along the lines of, um, of dialing up and down the ego. The idea of having just a little more confidence than the facts warrant, that is, I think, a helpful mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to have too much. You don't want to be completely blind to the fact that there's randomness in this life and that you don't control everything. But you do maybe want to have a little bit to kind of give it that extra push to believe in yourself, maybe just a little bit more than you should. Um, that I definitely think is a, is a helpful mindset. Yeah, and I think that's where the art of it all comes in is balancing, uh, you know, living in the real world, accepting reality for what it is with these self-imposed like delusions that you impose on yourself. Like uh, you, like you were saying, like add a little hyperbole, be use some bravado in your speech and just be a little over optimistic of things um, in the hope that they manifest themselves. And the the other benefit that it does too is it, it kind of helps you to have a narrative. Like it, it creates a narrative to live your life by. Uh, like it, it creates direction. It forges a path for whatever you're trying to do. Like I, I go back to, you know, the apathetic meditator, enlightened guru mm-hmm. that just kind of exists. Like there's nothing really that right. interesting. It, it, it's right. like he's not up well, It's to kind anything. of boring, right? You're like, so you sat around all day, you know the secret of the universe, but you smell bad. And your toenails are too long and your beard sucks and you live in a cave. Like, I don't, like, I don't want to live in a cave. I don't want to have gross toenails. I don't want to have a gross beard. You know, I want to have a nice beard. I want to have trim toenails. Um, so I, I agree with you hundred yeah. percent. I mean, it, there, something to me was always unsatisfying with the idea of, um, living in a, in a, uh, a world like that where you were just completely consumed with, you know, internal introspection um, I, and I, and from what you're saying, you as well needed to feel that like they were contributing to something more tangible. You know, you like having things you're working on, you like building things, you know, not even just objects, but just whatever you like building a life. So I, I think, you know, I feel the exact same way. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel the need to, you know, if, if the guru told me, you know, do I do, do you think that I'm making a mistake living my life this way? I would tell the guru, no, I have a fine life. I just not a life for me. I don't want your life. And I'm sure that you don't want mine. So we'll have to agree to disagree on that point. And uh, here's a toenail trimmer. I don't know. I mean, maybe leave it there. Yeah, here's some clippers. <laughs> here's some clippers. But I mean, I, I think it's natural to want to create but- things. I mean, I, to me, the fact that we live in a physical universe means that ultimately, you know, what we do is what we put into motion. I mean, that's true at a literal level and at a metaphorical level. Like we, as people should be defined by what we move and whether that's writing a book or coming up with an idea. I mean, we, there, there has to be a measure of production in measuring someone's life. Now, I don't mean in a strictly material way. No, I don't mean that at all. I mean, a, a good parent is putting something in motion, right? But that, that has to be mm-hmm. what we use to evaluate somebody because of where we live. If we lived in, in you know, if we lived inside of the uh, psychosphere or something, maybe it'd be different, but we live, we live here. And so when I judge someone, it's, what do they do? You know, that, that to me has to be the level that we use for determining 
a a productive life and a non-productive life is you know what are you what are you contributing towards what are you what, what are you working towards and that goes into your idea of, of the narrative like what is your story like your story is a summary of things that you have done nobody nobody would be a fan of king arthur if all he did was think to himself you know i could build a round table i'll get to that later like that wouldn't be a good story right like that'd be dumb as hell no one would read that story right you're right and that's that's one of the that's one of the distinguishments i'm trying to make is or trying to rationalize is looking through the eastern philosophy like we're saying it's like oh rid yourself of all wants rid yourself of all desires um but at the same time it's like like we just talked about all the benefits of having ambition and having those things going for you but you really have to stop and ask yourself, like, is this ambition? Is this an egotistical thing? Like, do I want to be ambitious so I can create a field of work that can be appreciated by other people and make me feel good? Or is there some alternative uh, motivation behind it? Like some more real, Mm -hmm. genuine motivation other than ego satisfaction. Yeah, but I, I, I would just say, like, even on that note, I would I would care very little about someone's motivations if they were doing things that I thought were like really good. So like if somebody went and built an orphanage because they wanted to date a supermodel, I'd be like, uh, they built an orphanage. Why do I care? Like it, I, I I agree with what you're saying in terms of of the of the person and, and the personal introspection. But as far as my judgment for somebody, I, I care much much more about the action than the motivation. Both both can be important, but in terms of just like a first order evaluation i am much 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 more concerned with what they are doing than than as to why wouldn't that get a little subjective though like maybe two people do two different things like two well i don't know i'd mm-hmm. say two political leader, leaders take two entirely different stances on something and they could both argue you know you could find people from both sides that say oh this way is superior because these actions are superior like inequality is down in this event but in this event, the standard of living is higher. So it's, there's no absolute uh, objective definition of what the right actions to take are or what the right results are. Definitely with something like politics, it would be like, if I saw, take a simple example. Like if I saw an old lady trip and fall on the ground and I saw a guy walk up to her and like help her up to her feet, I don't care why that guy did that. Mm -hmm. I, I care that he helped her up. I, I don't care if he did it because he knew her or because mm-hmm. he, you know, he loved his grandmother and felt obligated to. I, in that case, in that simple action, I don't care why he did what he did. More, I care much more, like care much less about that than that than that he helped rupture her feet. Uh, so, like in, in in the in the simple cases, it's mo- motivations I, I care less about and I, I care more about action. Certainly, when you get to the national level, you need to concern motive for the obvious reasons of trying to avoid corruption, but then also just more generally, you want to know what the long-term thinking is so that you know how to evaluate success. And then also so that you have a framework for determining next steps after the first of that, that you've taken. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. I think that's a pretty obvious example. Right. You know, right. Right. Granny exactly. falls over exactly. and some, someone helps her up. Um, but I think that there's all, there's a lot more, ambiguous or fringe examples that that can be given where it's not so obvious i i agree what the right move is like talk talking back to your your orphanage example what if 
what if someone started an orphanage or they, you know, but, and it helped all these kids, but there were also some massive side effects that didn't go reported from it. Like maybe they were stealing the kids to sell them, or maybe they were just doing it as a laundering front for, for money for themselves or for their own publicity or for their own gain in some other field. Like it, it becomes subjective real quick on what, how you weigh certain things and how you weigh what's good and what's bad. And I mean, that's, maybe that's the broader question is what is good and what is bad because there's no manual for how we define that in our own lives. Like it it seems like it was either imposed in us what's good and what's bad. Like that was just brainwashing, but it seems like the rare case for someone to have found those answers on their own as opposed to just being yeah and there's them. definitely always going to be competing notions of the good i would say as a as a starting point you know probably don't buy and sell children is, is a good one to start for anybody opening up an orphanage don't do it to, to harvest body organs i feel pretty safe saying <laughs> that um but but there certainly mm. is always going to be moral choices that are harder to make than others and i think what we what we have to do is always be open to, and even, even if we do something, what I think is even harder is evaluating it and, and deciding, you know what, what we wanted to do, this didn't work and having the courage to say that it didn't work and then to try something else. But it's really hard once you've committed your mindset to something, once you've put a personal investment in some action or in some decision, it's hard to then look back and say, yeah, that didn't work out the way that I thought it would and then I'm gonna change it. And that gets back to you know the ego and everything else. Um, I mean, that's hard too. It's hard. It would be hard to tell someone who opened up an orphanage, Hey, this actually is making things worse for these people. You should close it down. Like that would be hard to hear <laughs> no matter, no matter, you know, how wise a person mm-hmm. you are, if you've been told, Hey, your life's work is, uh, not doing what you wanted it to do. Uh, it would be hard to convince someone of that. And, you know, I, I think, I think we, we, we have to view, you know, whether or not ethics and morality are objective or not, you know, as people, all we can do is do it, do it in an iterative process. I mean, that we, we, we are stuck with that fate. And so what I would argue is the best thing we can do is to always, always be evaluating what we are trying to accomplish. And then maybe more importantly for some, for, for some things, are we accomplishing it and having the courage to say, you know what, that didn't work out. We should stop it. I know it is upsetting that we failed, but we did fail. We need to stop it and move on and try something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Um, something, so we were talking about uh, different, I gave those two statements and claimed that they made, they said the exact same thing. That is something that I've been struggling with in terms of my own writing lately is just, I, I find myself getting encumbered by how there's so many different ways to say the same exact thing. Like not just in terms of using the same words in different syntax and like swap, swapping the verb and the or the, the direct object and the subject, you know, and, and that type of thing. But there's all, many different ways to say the same exact thing, and it's not always apparent to me what the best way to do that is, or what the best way to approach that is. Like, does it matter? Does it not matter? Is there a, a cleaner way to do th- to to write things like is it more digestible one way than another um it does seem like the simpler things are stated the better 
Um, I think to like certain forms of comedy, like some comedians are not very eloquent at all. Like they just, or certain lines from movies are funny because they're just, they, they represent human emotions or human feelings in a way that's just so simply stated. Like I imagine like, you know, the redneck from like, uh, what, oh what yeah. Water, oh, yeah, water, with yeah, the, water, the water, water boy or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like everything he says is super funny and i think it's funny because he's like really just channeling the message behind the thought but he's doing it in such a simple way or such a simple vernacular like which right is right all right as we i'm from louisiana we, we we prefer to say you know redneck speak but I, i'm looking into semantics right now it's so <laughs> yeah i don't i mean writing a for for me and I and I'm assuming for you as well. This is something that we're that we're both new to, um, and it's just kind of fun to play around. Like, I I love wordplay. I love yeah. puns. I love all that stuff. Um, so, you know, I I I I just enjoy writing as the again back to this idea of an iterative process. I love the idea of just iterating through something, and you know, the, the, this idea of of making things as short as possible. I like. I like that idea kind of we were talking about a moment ago about brevity being important for writing. I think, you know, that's a real skill set as well. I don't always have it, uh, but it's definitely something that I try to improve on. But, you know, maybe one of these days we should get a, a writer on and to have them walk through, you know, it's just some, some, some good tips for, for what to look for in, in good versus mediocre writing uh, and, and kind of what separates the two of them, because I obviously have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it's it's interesting because because uh i would how i would define good writing and i mean i don't know i'm not even making the claim that i know i can identify good writing but how i would define it as of today is what's yes. easiest understood like scott adams i think is a great writer because everything he writes is super easy to understand like he's super smart and he i'm sure he could go off on all these using all these big words and complex sentences. And he could easily do that. In fact, his brain might even think that way, but he intentionally dumbs it down and makes it digestible. Like, I don't know, reading some of these early 19th century, 18th century philosophers, right. like it's not easy. Like reading like Nietzsche or like someone like that. It Even Viktor Frankl, I mean, he doesn't speak in or write in the simplest of terms. It's, it takes focus. It takes a lot of energy to, to track the thoughts and follow them and piece them together. And I, I'm definitely more of a fan of the simpler. The I am as well. That, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of two quotes and I, the, the Albert Einstein quote about making things as simple as possible, but no simpler. I think that's a great, a great quote. Um, and the other one by Richard Feynman, mm, the idea yeah. something to the effect of, if you really understand something, you can explain it to your grandparents. Like that is the level that you should understand something to be able to explain it. Um, I think both of those are good guiding principles for anybody who's writing anything complicated. You know, it, if you're writing for a lay audience, then it should be something that anybody in the lay audience should be able to read. And you shouldn't insult the audience by, you know, using too many analogies and by making it a fiction. But at the same time, you should be respective of what they are coming from into the work and to make sure that they have the tools of the average person is able to dissect what you're working on and to put it into their life. 
Yeah, and something like something that's very off-putting to me is reading through some of these these Ivy League journalists or or uh, publicists or just people from these acad- high academic levels where they write columns, they write articles, and they write it in the word pretentious comes to mind. Like they write it in such a pretentious way. Like they try to weave in like big words that you know people might not know or. They try to get like clever or fancy with their writing. Uh, in a way, it just feels pretentious. It doesn't feel genuine. And it's very off-putting to me to read some pieces like that. Um, one, so uh, someone that comes to mind, and this might be a little controversial, uh, is Brett Weinstein. Um, there's just a certain, a certain flavor, a certain stink that his delivery has, even in spoken delivery, that just kind of has a little a little taint of oh i yeah i think i'm better than you cuz i come from this academic background so and i'm i'm going to speak that way do you see anything I, like that or are you i have you i have not anything? listened too much to to Brett Weinstein i i know who he is i i'm more familiar with his with his brother eric uh, who i quite who I, I like quite a bit um i i maybe eric's the one well, talking about so, i don't i don't know I, I, yeah so i i definitely two. know what you're talking about and I, so from the other point of view, somebody who I have a lot of admiration for, uh, who was also controversial, but I, I do think writes in a way that is, uh, anybody can, can approach it, you know, agree or disagree is, is different, but you can at least uh, approach it, would be someone like Sam Harris, who I, I think does speak eloquently and, you know, is able to get his ideas across, who is just as smart as any Ivy League you know, whatever, but has a way of, well, right. But, but, but yeah, well, he, he is, I believe. You know, at least from what I've heard, he doesn't come across that way. Um, so I think, I think it's definitely a talent that people can develop. Uh, you know, even people that are super smart, like Scott Adams or Sam Harris or, you know, the, the line scenes, you know, whoever it is being smart doesn't mean that you have to talk in a way that is incomprehensible. <laughs> in fact, if you're smart, you should be able to figure out how to say smart things in a dumb way. Right. I mean, that would be the real sign of intelligence. Like that would be another level of intelligence mm-hmm. is I know this way is smart thing. How do I communicate it? Um, and that's something that probably, probably we could all use some work on. But if, uh, you know, if uh, Brett Weinstein's listening to this podcast, you know, maybe maybe take a step back and, you know, try and use some smaller words for us. <laughs> it's funny. I like find myself and maybe this is just my total subjective illusion, but like even as I write myself, like writing things down, you know, a piece or an article or something, I'll write sentences and then during the revision process, I'll like dumb it down a little bit. Like if I if I write a word where I'm like, oh shit, like that's kind of like a not a common word to use, even though it's the perfect word for the situation, I'll I'll, I'll like dumb it down. You know, like we were talking earlier oh, about what was that word? Disparate, uh, disparate, yeah, no, despite, see, despite, yeah, it's hard to, or no, disparate, yeah. Sounds too much like desperate. Disparate. Or despite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a disparate. terrible word. Yeah. Like a word like a word like that, like I could see myself finding the perfect the perfect placement for it, the perfect context in a sentence or in a piece. But then I could see myself going like writing it in the first revision and going back and being like, uh, that sounds a little too highbrow for what I'm trying to do here and then taking it out. And again, maybe that's just like my subjective perspective, but I'm find myself more drawn to some of these characters out there that uh, aren't 
traditionally educated in the fields that they're experts in. And like Scott Adams, for example, like he, I mean, he's a cartoonist, right? He's a cartoonist. And I think he uh, studied economics, but now he, he talks persuasion and politics and all these about all these different things that he's not a traditional expert in, but he is an expert in them. And he's often right more at times than some of the experts are, but I, I'm starting to get more and more interested in those types of characters that are outside of the system, speaking about the system, and a lot of times in more accurate ways than those who are... And, and at least in a way that's easier to comprehend, which is, I think, probably the more important... I, and I think, yeah. yeah. I, I was gonna, and yeah. I think Nassim Tlaib would fall into that's, that uh, category, I was going to make that point um, myself. I completely agree with you. Yeah, so he, not only a, is he kind of, kind of an, an outcast, outcast, but I mean, he also has a very unique writing style. Like, if you read his books, it's, it's like... He like makes up characters. He has like Fat Tony and like Nero, and like he makes up people. And it's I mean, it, it reads. You're like, what the hell is this? But you know, it's 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 entertaining. It keeps you engaged, which is half the battle when you're reading, right? Is like enjoying it and being interested in finishing the work. But then along the way, it's like, wow, like you know, he really works in yeah. some some concepts. And it's it's important to point out, you know, for 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 the benefit of people that are writing about complex things, sometimes things really are just complicated and like that is just going to be the struggle to learning the idea and that's that is okay but again it's minimizing those as much as possible so that at the very least people that are reading your work are able to get through it and can develop you know it's i think there's a lot to be said for reading through a work once to get a a a framework for the ideas as as a whole and then to go back into the piece and revisit things that you maybe had a little more difficult time with and if you, if you make a, a, a book or, or an article mm. that is readable, then people can get through the whole thing and then go back and revisit portions they had a harder time with. But definitely someone like Asim, you know, does that really well. And he works in, you know, these funny anecdotes and, you know, these personal stories and, you know, these made up characters. And like along the way, you've, you've read a book about probability, whereas like what would it take to get someone to read a probability textbook? I mean, that would never happen. So, you know, it's like this disguise that worked out really well. And I think it was in, in the end, he has written these five books that are all great. Yeah. And he's, he, he's an expert in investing, but he seems as though he has no affiliation with Wall Street. You know what I mean? Like he, he's a Wall Street outsider that is speaking the language and speaking the truth about yeah, what's and, really going on it, behind the scenes. And I, and I agree with you. That, and he was, a, he was a trader, you know, he did do trading, but um, I think if he had any involvement with any big firm, if, if at all, it was not for a very long period of time. Uh, but I like him too, because as a trader and as somebody who made money in the markets and as somebody who put his ideas into practice, you know, he, you know, he had what he would call skin in the game. Like he put his ideas to the test with his money and his reputation and everything else. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of respect for him in that regard as well, that he was willing to go against the grain, but also to, to incur some risk along the way. And that kind of gets into the framework of, of, of his morality is the idea of having skin in the game, that when you take risks, you know, if, if you're making a risky decision, you need to be putting your own self at risk and not just other people, uh, which is a, a great lesson to learn as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I would say that I would make the claim that it would be easier to understand a physics lecture given by Richard Feynman than a lecture on how to tie your shoes by, you know, some obscure 
Harvard theoretical. Yeah, Rick, Richard Feynman was in. Oh, wait, he's the yeah. rare combination of somebody who was a phenomenal like researcher. I mean, practically one of the most important physicists to live, and was still a phenomenal lecturer. I mean, that truly covers the spectrum, right? I mean, not only was he on the cutting edge, literally defining the cutting edge, mm-hmm. but he could also teach to students. I mean, that that shows mastery. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's why he is one of the greatest. The coat. Yeah, the goat. Um. So I know we're running low yes, on time yes. here, but I did have one more question from your piece. Uh, let's see, which number was it? It was mm. number yes, number yes. four. This is, this is a Keep huge, an eye on maybe even points. more controversial than. And, and let me, I uh, I may have misnumbered these, but yes, decimal count. Whenever numbered is on the list, yeah, keep an eye on the decimal count. Absolutely. Now, does that speak towards towards uh, mm-hmm. overall in life to, mm-hmm. you know, watch your significant figures in life? Make sure you don't look too much into things or you know, carry too many decimal points with you throughout life? Great, great point. So Just there's what two you adages that come to mind. One is not seeing the forest through the trees, but the other is mind your pennies and nickels, dollars will take care of themselves. So I'm a little torn on, on how I would take this one in terms of a life lesson. I really did in, in this case there really is no strategy in reading. It really was. It's annoying when somebody has a spreadsheet about money and they have eight decimals. It's like, Hey, dumbass, <laughs> what is the uh, 80th decimal place of a penny and nothing get it off of there. Um, so yeah, it pays. I mean, yeah, yeah pennies yeah, is I, essentially I remember, nothing. you know, when, uh, so in, in engineering uh, design, our senior year design, we had to have a, a, a spreadsheet for the cost of the project. It was like a net present value calculation. And yes, yeah, I'm a chemical engineer, so like every every kidney project is going to be you know hundreds of millions of dollars, and so it was the the, the person was saying, look, when you present your net present value, I don't want to see anybody showing me uh, pennies on that calculation. Like this should be rounded up to like the nearest hundred thousand dollar. Like do not put you know uh, it's going to cost ten million and five bucks. It's like no, like that's just ridiculous. So I always like that one. That one always stuck with me. Um, when you're making a spreadsheet, know what you're doing. Have the confidence to round, uh, rounding back to actually, funny enough, playing off of the idea of conveying things in simple in, in simple ways. When you're conveying numbers to somebody, people don't think in numbers. We 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 think in terms of proportion. Use that when you're presenting something. Use use the the fact that people cannot tell the difference mm-hmm. between well one point five and one point four million dollars. You know that is the same number to someone's mind. So don't pretend otherwise. And in your spreadsheet, it should reflect a level of knowledge of what you're working on to know what is an important level uh, to report these findings, et cetera. So back to what we were talking about before, making things as simple as possible, but no simpler. That definitely applies to rounding in Excel spreadsheets. Excellent. Oh, what about, I, uh, what about scientific oh, notation? Man. You know, just recently, I, I realized that you could actually could, could type in that notation and it was selling it would work and it was like this life-changing experience i was like oh my gosh it was, it was fantastic uh, yeah i i like that i think it looks really clean uh, i i like spreadsheets that look really clean uh so you know scientific notation works definitely works for me awesome 
Okay, Absolutely. well, I think we're well, just Well, everybody, this was you want to sign us off? Uh, definitely an interesting conversation. Uh, the, the ethical framework of Microsoft Excel. Um, if you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, Roses and Rhetoric. Also follow us on Twitter at Roses underscore Rhetoric for Jimmy Hackett. Uh, damn it. Well, go ahead and keep it, Joe. For Joseph Stanford, this is Jimmy Hackett signing off for Roses and Rhetoric. We will see you guys next time. Ciao.